Welcome to the next GenCast. My name's Nish Manik, I'm a GP in Cambridge, and this is episode 29 with Dr Bola Owalabi, Director of Health Inequalities at NHS England and NHS Improvement. And here's just a taste of what's to come. Whatever it is, there is something that we can do personally, professionally, and in influencing policy. We all have spheres of influence in tackling health inequalities. It's everybody's business. So that's a sneak preview of what's to come in a really interesting conversation. But here's a bit more about Bola. So the pandemic has highlighted the issues around health inequalities and Bola has been leading the NHS effort to really try and accelerate progress in this area over the last few years. She also still works as a GP in the Midlands and has held various leadership roles at local system and national levels, which she's going to tell us about. Now, I don't know Bola at all personally, but having heard her speak at a few meetings and conferences I always come away with an impression of someone that is just quietly confident and hugely committed to this purpose of reducing health inequalities. And at the same time, she's also clearly mindful of bringing other people along this leadership journey with her. So I've been curious for a while to understand a bit more about, you know, how does she get to where she's got to? What is the story behind her drive? for reducing health inequalities, because I felt there must be one. And what has she maybe found difficult as well along the way? So she was really candid with me and definitely confirmed my observations about her values-driven leadership style. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's Bola Owalabi. Bola, thank you so much and welcome to the Next Gen Cast. It's such a privilege to have you on the podcast. I have seen you in meetings over the last few years at NHS England. I have seen you speak to larger audiences as well. And the reason I wanted you on the podcast is I always come away being really impressed with your your passion for health inequalities and just the way you articulate yourself, this inner confidence that you have. So I was curious to know a bit more about you. So it's great to speak to you. Thank you so much, Nish, um, for those very kind comments and for the um, invitation to join you on the podcast today. Really looking forward to it. Thank you. So I'd love to start by learning a bit more about you as a person. And if you don't mind, I thought maybe we could start with going right back to when you were growing up and maybe who or what influenced your early life the most? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I often think about the career path that I've taken and the fact that that really was triggered when I was nine years old. And I remember being admitted to hospital for a length of time uh, along with my friend, uh, who herself is now a surgeon in New Zealand. And we met during that hospital admission in hospital. And we were looked after by a wonderful female doctor. And she epitomized, even to my nine-year-old mind, compassion, dignity. Not that I would necessarily have used these words at the time. But my adult self can now see that that's what she represented. And I remember being discharged from hospital and determined that I was going to be like this wonderful female doctor who'd looked after my friend and I. I think she probably is the earliest role model that I can think of in my decision to go on to study medicine. That's so nice. I wonder if she knows that this, you know, this doctor inspired two other people to go into medicine. And it sort of makes me think you've got to be, you know, you've always got to be mindful of who you might be role modelling to, of who you might be inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And what about your parents? What did they do? So um, my dad is a retired uh, mechanical engineer. And my dad is somebody who all through 
my growing years, used to always instill in me and my siblings a sense of worth, you know, a sense of confidence and appreciation for who we were and just relentlessly willing us on to be the best that we can ever be. He's 78 now and he he still talks about, you know, driving us to school and saying there is nothing that you want to achieve that you can't. And I think that's really formed part of who I am and how I think. My mum is sadly no longer with us um, and people may have heard me talk about her or read my blog about her. And, you know, I talked to you just now about a professional inspiration for the decision to study medicine. I will say now that my mum is my personal inspiration in terms of the way that my career journey has gone. And I say that because thinking back, it strikes me that health inequalities is a theme throughout my career, even when I wasn't consciously aware of making those choices. And I think my mum and her story are the explanation for that. Do you mind me asking if you could share that story with us? If it's not too difficult for you. No, I don't mind at all because I think, you know, the saying that talks about start with why. I do think my mom's story is my why. Why do I care? You know, why is health inequalities not just a role, but a cause that I invest myself in? So my why is the fact that... um, Mom sadly died when she was 48. And the reason for that was we didn't have access to timely and quality health care for her. She died of type 2 diabetes, which, as listeners will know, is a perfectly treatable condition. Thankfully, not something that most people will die of. And in the end, the thing that stood between her and life was access to insulin. Insulin, the most basic, one of the cheapest medications on the planet. And the inability to be able to afford that. And what that story does is it reminds me that for many people and many communities in the UK, because of our NHS, my mom's story is not going to be their story. Nevertheless, there are real barriers to people's ability to access the care that they need. And those barriers are not necessarily money barriers, but nevertheless, they're there. And that drives me on. It drives me on and it is the driving force behind who I am, what I'm trying to do as part of a wider team, of course, um, in narrowing the health inequalities gap for those people and communities who do find themselves at the margins of society. Thank you for sharing that, Bola. And it's my comment at the start makes even more sense now because that's something I've really observed about you is that you're very purpose-driven in everything you talk about. And now I can hear maybe some of that backstory and where that purpose has perhaps come from. Uh, and you're tackling such a difficult area that I imagine having that at the forefront of your mind is is really important. It's really important. It, it brings a level of commitment that might be difficult otherwise. Yes. Mm. 
and we'll perhaps come on to talk about your role and what's difficult about it. But I wanted to just step back again in time, and you're a GP, I understand. Um, when did you first identify as a leader, do you think? What was the moment when you thought, actually, I'm, I'm leading here? So, yes, uh, I am privileged to be a GP, and um, I absolutely love being a GP. In terms of identifying as a leader, I've often said, and I do believe that it's others who decide whether we are leaders or not. And I feel my experience of that is probably both at a personal and a professional level. And I do think that people see qualities in us that they recognize as leadership and they start describing us as such. So my first formal experience of being called a leader, if you like, was as a newly qualified GP and being asked to become the prescribing lead for my practice. Probably that's the first early experience I have of people recognizing that perhaps I have something to contribute, something to bring to the table and being invited to step into that role. It's so interesting because so many people on the podcast talk about somebody that tapped upon the shoulder and said, look, you know, you can be a leader if you want to be. It often comes down to that personal touch. And again, a bit like the doctor that inspired you to be a doctor, it reminds us of the power we can have with our words, um, even with people coming up behind us at every stage. Indeed. And I do want to celebrate Dr. Elizabeth Barrett who was the senior partner at the practice where I worked then. And she was the, she was that person that you're talking about, Nish. She was that person who noticed something and bothered. She bothered to call it out. And I agree with you that, you know, one of our biggest duties as leaders is to spot potential in people, to call it out and enable it. Because she not only said, why don't you be the prescribing lead? She enabled it because my very first experience of having a professional training in leadership was because of Bessa, as we fondly call her. Because not only did she say, step forward, be the prescribing lead. She also ensured that I was able to go off to the University of Exeter Business School to do the Royal College of GPs leadership development for a year whilst continuing to practice at the surgery. So yes, our role as leaders is not only to lead, it's to notice others around us and where we see their potential, name it, encourage them, and then enable them. Definitely. We can centre this and say, it would be lovely for her to hear it, I'm sure. So, um, oh, can, it would be wonderful. I'll, I can always <laughs> track her down and send it to her. And I, I really think as well, for women, that feels particularly important. That's my observation, that we're not often very good at calling out these qualities in ourselves. Yet my own experience is similar in that people have called that out in, in me. So I think for women in particular, yeah. that can feel especially important in our role as leaders. Oh, it's absolutely crucial, especially for women, um, because we almost universally suffer the imposter syndrome. And we, we all know that women are the ones who will always think, I'm not quite ready yet. I need to go off and get the next qualification and the next qualification before I'm ready to take on that role. And what sits behind that is the imposter syndrome and to have someone else. I call them sponsors. I think many times we talk about mentors and they are important. We even talk about coaches and they are important. But I think even more impactful in terms of people's progression are sponsors. You know, they are the ones who allow us to overcome the imposter syndrome. They're the ones who hold the door open. They're the ones who acknowledge 
celebrate and mention our work. And it's so important to have people at the right tables talking about the work of others who may not yet have access to those spaces. Mentorship, yes. Coaching, yes. Sponsorship, absolutely. Hmm. That's so insightful. Thank you, Bola. And probably not that difficult to do, really, as a sponsor yourself, because mentoring and coaching is something that takes quite a lot of time and investment. But as a sponsor, just remembering when you're in the right rooms to mention certain people and their work is not a very difficult thing to do. You mentioned the imposter syndrome there. Is that something that you still have experience of in the role that you do? Or has it, has it faded a bit now that you're more senior? I think the imposter syndrome is one that I've made my peace with. How have you done that? Tell me, I need to know. (laughs) I've made my peace with it that it is a necessary part of being a leader because it keeps us grounded. It reminds us that our leadership is only as impactful as we allow ourselves to be interdependent with others. That matters because leadership is not about being independent and aloof and removed and detached from others. Leadership, certainly the type of leadership that I've found inspiring in my life and that I aspire to be, it's this type of leadership that connects deeply and genuinely with others. So it's about interdependence not independence. And what the imposter syndrome does is it actually enables me to be interdependent with others. It reminds me that I don't have all the answers and that I do need to continually strengthen my networks and my connections with others in order to be effective. So that's what I mean by making my peace with it. It hasn't gone away. It's just stopped being a gremlin and has become an enabler. That's really interesting. I suppose it's always going to be in the back seat as long as it's not driving. That's okay. But it's you just have to accept this extra passenger that you're going to have on board. I want to go back to something you mentioned before about, you know, women thinking that they need to do lots of qualifications um, in order to feel qualified to do a job. And you said that you did this RCGP course in leadership. And I understand you did a master's degree with distinction. You have an NHS Leadership Academy Award in executive healthcare leadership for clinicians. And you're a Generation Q Fellow at the Health Foundation. So you've clearly done a lot in terms of qualifying yourself to be a leader. How useful have you found that formalized training? And is that something that you would recommend to people to do? Or Do you think you were doing it in order to feel able to do a job? That's a really good question. And I'm going to quote Brene Brown. Uh, Brene is one of my all-time favorite authors. And she talks about the armor that can stop us from being seen. I think it's the relationship that we have with professional training. If we see it as a necessary tool for the work that we need to do. Rather than armoring ourselves, they're two subtle but significantly different things. What do I mean by that? It's tempting as a medic, as a doctor, to think because I spent seven years getting a medical degree and X number of years doing my postgraduate qualifications to be a GP, It's tempting to think that that somehow qualifies me to be a leader. That's dangerous because bear in mind, there are people from other fields who have invested time, effort in furthering themselves through these professional training. And therefore, for me as a medic, it was important to be respectful of that, to not just assume that being a doctor somehow entitles or qualifies me to lead outside of the realms of medicine. And so I have found those training programs incredibly helpful. 
But what I have been is highly selective. I haven't simply gone on the next master's or the next training program. I've considered the content of it and what sort of leader I'm trying to be and intentionally, purposefully gone for programs that A, align with my values and B, align with the destination. So acquiring the qualifications is not the issue. It's the intention behind it that matters. Thank you. That's really good advice. So you're saying don't just try and get the qualification for the sake of it, but actually look at what it's going to give you and where you're going and will it help you to get there. But yes. um, equally, don't assume that just as doctors, you can just lead and sometimes doing more formalised training is useful. I, I definitely agree with you there. Is, is there anything else that you've done that you felt has helped you in your journey as a leader or continue to do maybe? Definitely. I think um, there are resilience building things that we all need to do. It's important to build your resilience on support. Get support, get a coach, get a mentor. Having a space in which to be your whole self and be completely vulnerable is really important because there will be moments along the way where things don't quite go according to plan, despite your best efforts. And it's important to have spaces that you can go to and really share not just what happened, but how it really feels, because that's important. And also those spaces need to be where you don't just excel, whilst that really is important, but they also need to be places where you can be given different perspectives. Because sometimes when you're in the middle of it, your perspective is blurred because of the pressure of the moment. What coaching and mentoring does is it helps you to just step away, take a few paces back from the issue. Then you gain a different perspective and hopefully you come out with options. One of the things that I found the most impactful in the Generation Q Fellowship is becoming aware of your choices, you know, recognizing that in every situation you have a set of choices rather than to act based on our default setting. We all have a default setting, but part of the role of leadership is becoming aware of our choices in the moment. So mentoring, coaching, getting the training we need to be more aware of our options in the moment. Those are the things that I have done and continue to do that help me to be resilient in my leadership journey. And how did you choose your coach or your mentor? What were you looking for in that person? Was there something specific or did they choose you? That's a really interesting way to put that question because sometimes that's, that happens. Sometimes they choose you. I think for me, it's been about the alignment of values. You get a sense from talking to people what their value system is the more you interact. And if there is alignment there, then it's more comfortable because the conversations flow easily. I look for a combination of support and challenge because the last thing anyone needs is somebody who tells you, you're perfect, there's nothing wrong with you, it's the you against the world. That is the most destructive, potentially, kind of coaching or mentoring relationship. I've always looked for people who are able to, yes, support me and challenge me appropriately because it's the combination that really makes the difference in a positive way for us. The other thing that I've learned as well is to, in the course of doing our work, just keep the antenna up because you'll come across people. And it doesn't need to be all formal. That's the other thing that I want to say. 
sometimes we put too much emphasis on everything being so formalized. Sometimes, particularly mentoring, you know, it's about who is the person that is doing things that I really value in a way that I appreciate and reaching out to them and connecting with them and staying in touch with them and touching base with them. I'm trying to do X in this way. What do you think? And before you know it, you are in a mentoring relationship, even without the word mentor ever being used. That's again, the other thing that I found really helpful. And also, you know, that approach has worked for me. And I think in part, because when you go to somebody and say, will you be my mentor? It, it can be, God, I would really love to do that, but I'm up to my eyeballs mm-hmm. and I don't want to let you down. Whereas if we let it just emerge in an organic way, <laughs> in a relational way, you will still get a mentor without people feeling put on the spot. I hope I'm that's la- It does. It's really helpful, actually. I don't think anyone's said that and I'm laughing because I'm just thinking it's a bit like asking someone out you sort of rather than saying will you be my my boyfriend or girlfriend it's better to just sort of let's see where this goes either side it's great advice because I think everyone on this podcast talks about the importance of having a mentor or having a coach but actually in practice for people who are like me at the start of their careers Finding the courage to go and ask someone, will you be my mentor, is so daunting Um, when the other person is more senior than you. So I like that notion of, you know, just to see where the relationship goes. You don't have to make it all about commitment straight away. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, make people aware of what you're doing. Most good leaders want to see others do well and, you know, keep them updated about your work, what you're doing, what you're thinking of doing next, you know, seek out their opinion about it. And yeah, they don't have to overcome the psychological hurdle of I'm going to be a mentor. They're just mentoring organically. Mm. And you being in touch with that person can just make you realize that things are possible. And I think for women from an ethnic minority background as well, like us, that's particularly important. Just touching base with someone now and again who's several steps ahead of you but looks a bit like you can help i i i think it's um i think it's it's both and i think keeping in touch with people who represent who you are uh whatever those characteristics happen to be is important it's also important to realize that actually there is value in difference hmm. Most of my mentors over the years and my coaches have been people from backgrounds very different to mine. And I've really valued that because they help me to see the world through a lens that I may not see it through without their insight. And sometimes not being able to see the world through lenses different to our own can in itself be a barrier. It can in itself be the thing that limits us. And so I've learned that being proactive and intentional about putting myself in the vicinity of people who are different to me, I would say has been such a vital part of my leadership journey. They've they've helped me to become rounded in the way I view the world and the way I interact with the world. And I think if I had stayed completely in the space of those who look, sound like me, I may not have had that opportunity of such a wide-angled view on the world and we need that wide-angle view as leaders. So important. Mm, that's a really good point actually and you you said it's similar to what you said before about having people that support you but also challenge you. It's also having people that look like you but also don't look like you and can offer True. a different perspective so it's a really good point. 
do you mind if I ask on that note, have you ever felt like your your race or how you look has influenced your career journey to date? That's a very deep question and it's a really important one. And if I reflect on my leadership journey, I will say that I have been fortunate not to be the recipient of overt racism. I am also mindful that who I am in terms of how I look, how I sound, has played a part sometimes in the speed at which I've been able to progress. However, what it taught me is something that Cheryl, I think it's Cheryl Sanderson, I could be wrong. Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg, yeah. Cheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer at Facebook. I don't know if she's still there. What her book, Lean In, helped me to see, though, was actually it's about taking a scenic route rather than holding yourself hostage to a career ladder. Career ladders tend to work if you fit in with the general profile, largely. But if you have characteristics that means you are part of a more diverse pool, you would be wise to embrace a scenic route. Because what that does is it mitigates against frustration. It stops you from hitting repeated walls. Those are all deficit benefits. The appreciative benefits are it gives you a wealth of experience that you won't have if you simply climb a ladder. It gives you options and opportunities beyond your immediate world that you won't ordinarily have. So if I think about my own leadership experience, trained as a GP, worked as an employed GP, then worked as a GP partner, then worked in the CCG as commissioning lead for maternity, children and young people, then worked as a system lead for frailty, then worked as a system lead for end-of-life care, then worked as deputy medical director in a very large community provider trust, then worked as a national specialty advisor to NHS England and Improvement, and now working in my current role. That looks more like a jigsaw puzzle to me than (laughs) a career ladder. And I've enjoyed every bit of it. And it's amazing how you have so much to pull on, to draw on by making those detours into all those sort of different avenues. Some suddenly you embody a wealth of experience that you won't get by just going from rung to rung to rung on a ladder. That's my view. No, I think that's so insightful because as medics particularly, we're very prone to going from rung to rung because that's exactly how our career pathway is structured. But leadership doesn't necessarily need to be like that. And sometimes it makes sense in retrospect when you look back. But at the time, you're not quite sure where this is going. But it's useful yes. to hear from someone like you that it, it works out in the end and you can learn things as you, as you go. That brings me nicely on, actually, to your current role as Director of Health Inequalities at NH England. And, you know, for people listening, could you maybe explain to us what does that actually mean? What does that role look like? What's your, what's your aim in that role? Sure. Thank you. No, no problem at all. So, um, so the way the NHS is organised is we have NHS England, which is a national body that leads and oversees and governs the work of the NHS. In addition to that national element, we also have seven regions of NHS England who also oversee the work that the NHS is doing at the front line. And beneath the seven regions, we have the 42 integrated care systems, 
And beneath those, we then have our providers, including our GP practices, our PCNs, our hospitals, our community trusts, and so on. So that's how the NHS is organised. So my role is in the national team at NHS England and Improvement. And the work that um, the National Healthcare Inequalities Improvement Team do is maybe fourfold. First of all, we, we set a very clear direction to the system about what is it that we're trying to achieve when we talk about tackling health inequalities. So the vision that we set out is exceptional quality healthcare for all by ensuring equitable access, excellent experience, and optimal outcomes. So we've set a very clear direction in terms of this is the vision. In addition to that, we then need to set some clear priorities for the system. So for example, we've said, as we come out of the pandemic, we need to restore our NHS services inclusively. We've said we need to guard against digital exclusion. We've said we need to do better with our ethnicity coding, making sure that our data sets are complete and timely. We've said that we need to really make progress in terms of, you know, some of the preventative programs around long-term conditions that we talked about in the long-term plan. And finally, we've said we need to strengthen leadership and accountability. So we set the vision, we set the priorities, but I think our most important work is we support our regions, systems, and providers. And how do we do that? We provide a whole range of guidance, we develop tools and resources. So in April this month, we will be publishing a resource called the High Impact Actions in collaboration with the Health Foundation that just gives people practical tools. How do you actually tackle health inequalities? The other thing we've done, we've worked with the Royal College of GPs to develop education modules on health inequalities. It's on their website. Please go and have a look and do the modules. They're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. We are working with Health Education England again on developing some further education and training modules, which will be going live in June. So those are just some support tools that we've provided. The other things we do, we provide a lot of funding for specific projects. So for example, in Bradford, um, they have something called the Reducing Inequalities in Communities Program, RIC. And there are several like that right across the country. The, the thing that excites me the most at the moment is we've just recruited people called Core 20 Plus Connectors. They are individuals from our most deprived communities, from our ethnic minority communities, our traveler communities, those who have experienced homelessness. They are our connectors to really connect with those people and communities that struggle to access our services. And we've just gone live with 13 integrated care systems in phase one. And that really excites me. And that leads me to the other thing we do, Nish, which is to find good practice and to support it to be scaled in size and spread to other areas. That's just a few of the things that um, my team and I do. Not a straightforward job by any means, Bola, from what you describe. I imagine that's been quite stressful at times for you and challenging as well as, as, well as very rewarding. Do you mind if I ask, I want to voice a slightly internal dilemma that I have about health inequalities, and I really appreciate your, your wisdom here. What I grapple with is, on some, in some respects, I'm quite hopeful because COVID has clearly pushed health inequalities up the priority list, and it feels like a really exciting time in some ways. And We're talking about it a lot more, and maybe we really have an opportunity to make a difference. And yet, on the other hand, I sometimes have worries that creep in. For example, we've been trying to make a difference for a long time. 
And as people like Michael Marmot will tell us, we haven't been very successful. In fact, we're probably going backwards in lots of respects. The pandemic has actually widened health inequalities in some ways. And the political will is to focus on waiting lists and elective recovery times. So I sort of seesaw a bit between being hopeful and then being quite worried. And whenever I hear you speak, you always sound really hopeful and positive about the direction we're going in. So I wanted to ask whether you ever have that sort of internal dilemma and how you stay hopeful that we're going to make progress this time. Wow, Nish, that is so insightful. You're right that the pandemic most definitely has exacerbated pre-existing health inequalities, not least when you think about the likelihood of contracting the COVID virus, the likelihood of having very severe disease, the likelihood of dying. The data is clear. We've seen the Office for National Statistics publishing data that even when you've accounted for all other factors, ethnicity still remains, in particular, a key driver of the differential in mortality from COVID and also deprivation. So we know that people from the most deprived communities, regardless of their race or their ethnicity, have also fared rather badly um, from the pandemic. And so it has really shone that harsh light that we've all talked about. And it's galvanized our energies. Really important to say, it really has galvanized our energies. Why haven't we made progress historically? There isn't a neat answer. Some of my reflections is if we don't focus, it's very difficult to gain traction. And when you don't have traction, it becomes really difficult to have an impact. I think historically what we've tried to do is to fix everything at the same time. And so that dissipates energy, it dissipates effort, and it means that we then have very limited impact. So what we've tried to do differently this time is to at least try and bring a degree of focus. So if we talk about healthcare inequalities, for example, we're pushing and driving the core 20 plus five approach. And we're doing that because we're trying to, this time, try a focus traction impact approach, which says we're going to focus on a particular population cohort. We're going to focus on that 20% most deprived plus our inclusion health communities, our coastal communities that are tucked behind relative affluence, our traveler communities, those in contact with the criminal justice system, the core 20 plus. This is the population group that we're going to try and focus on. And for them, we're going to drive behind five clinical areas that are the biggest contributors to premature mortality. Maternity, not being a driver of premature mortality, but mortality disparity, mental health, cancer, cardiovascular disease, you know, these things. So core 20 plus five as a delivery engine that is focused and harnesses all our efforts. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we're trying to also be clear, what is the role of the NHS in tackling health inequalities? Acknowledging that the NHS can't do everything, especially the wider determinants, housing, education, employment, household income, those big determinants in Michael Marmot's reports that the NHS alone 
cannot change. So we're saying one of the key roles of the NHS is to work as a partner with the integrated care system, with our local authorities, our voluntary sector partners, our business and industry, working with them to address those wider determinants. And we're hoping that by separating out those two things, that at least we've given ourselves a chance to focus. And that then gives us some traction. And hopefully that will mean we have demonstrable impact in the coming future. That's what gives me hope. Thank you, Bola. And you give me hope because every time I hear you speak, I always, I always come away feeling really energised and inspired. I'm sure lots of people do. So thank you. And I'll link to call 20 plus five in the notes for people who want to understand exactly what you mean by that. And if they haven't heard about it, I think it's so important to read about. I'm so conscious of your time. You've only got a couple of minutes left. For people listening who, like me, are filled with hope and inspiration, maybe they're GPs at the start of their careers. Have you got any advice for what they could do themselves to help to get involved to influence even if they don't have formal leadership positions what can we do there is so much every single one of us can do and i would say regardless of our level of seniority every single one of us has a sphere of influence we just need to recognize what it is and i think we have particularly as gps three levels of influence when it comes to tackling health inequalities First of all, at a professional level, we can equip ourselves, you know, with the knowledge, with the skills, with the capability. That's the first thing we can do. You know, these modules that I've been talking about, let's go straight onto the RCGP website and actually do those modules. And that way we arm ourselves with the knowledge and the capability to be able to help our patients. And I often use an example here, um, still talking about the, you know, the professional level. For example, how often do we consider the impact of people's income and social circumstances on their ability to comply with our treatment plans? Maybe the reason why that person's mental health is not improving is not because they're being lazy and not picking up the sertraline prescription. Maybe they can't afford it. You know, there's something about just pausing to consider what else is going on for this person. Maybe that repeated DNA person is because their life is such a jumble of issues that to even have the headspace to remember that appointment. Maybe that's why there's serial DNAs. So before we jump to judgment, it's almost kind of taking a health inequalities lens professionally. That's the first thing. We can influence policy. We're all members of primary care networks, the PCNs. Every PCN has a clinical director. We can ask, what is our PCN doing to tackle health inequalities? And how can I help? We can influence policy. The next time you get a bulletin come through about what your PCN is going to be doing, if you can't see anything in it that talks about health inequalities, email the address at the bottom of the bulletin. So that is our role in influencing policy. So I've talked about professional and I've talked about policy. Then there is the personal you know, the contribution that we can all make in our own personal lives. And I'll give an example here to explain that. So I was um, in Bradford three weeks ago um, with colleagues from the NHS and other partners. And I remember us um, encountering a lovely gentleman um, experiencing homelessness. And it just occurred to me that actually maybe the useful thing I could do in that moment was just join him on the ground because he was sitting on the ground. We were standing. So I sat on the ground next to him and we had a 15 minute conversation. And towards the end, he picked up his tin that he was using to collect money and said to me, do you know what? 
give me this. He was pointing to me and him. Give me this, this conversation any day. I'd much rather this conversation than a pot full of gold. And that's just stayed with me. You know, there is there is a difference that all of us can make personally. Whether it's for that homeless person you encounter, whether it's to go and, as I try to do through my church, we do have food bank service for the people in the area who are struggling. Maybe you only have time to go and do some food bank packing. Maybe you have time to actually drive around doing the delivery. Whatever it is, there is something that we can do personally, professionally, and in influencing policy. We all have spheres of influence in tackling health inequalities. It's everybody's business. Ola, thank you. That is such a great note to end on, a real call to action, which is something I've noticed about your leadership style, that you tend to end with actually what what are we going to do rather than just having a, a philosophical conversation. So I'm going to take that away. So sort of professional development going on maybe to do the RCGP modules and I'll put that in the show notes thinking about the patient in front of you and how health inequalities and social determinants are influencing them then thinking about how you could influence it as a policy level or a PCN level and then putting medicine aside you know on a personal level where can you contribute to your community and think about inequalities in your own area that's fantastic. Bola, I'm sorry I've taken an extra couple of minutes of your time. It's but... been a pleasure <laughs> talking to you, Nish. Thank, thank you, you so... for having me. No, thank you so much. It goes back to what I was saying at the start, that I, I don't know you very well, but I was always so struck by your sense of purpose. And having people like you in a job like this gives people like me hope. So thank you so much. And, you know, for what it's worth, I, I can just imagine your mum overhearing this conversation and just how proud she would be. Thank you so much, Nish. An absolute pleasure being here. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. So that was episode 29 with Dr. Bola Owalabi. And I just, I love her leadership style, which is collaborative, quietly confident and hugely purpose driven. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do share it with anyone else that you think might find it of interest. And if you want to keep in touch with NextGen, the links are all in the show notes. So that's it for another week and we'll see you next time for the NextGen cast.